In September of 1988, there was a young man, you're kind of looking at him right now, uh, who signed up to play football. This was my seventh grade year uh, in the small town of Marietta that I grew up in. Uh, Everyone was in athletics. It's one of those things that everyone did, everyone participated, and we had a coach by the name of Coach Colby. Uh, He was, without a doubt, my favorite coach that I ever had in all of my times of of having a coach. Uh, We were always very intimidated intimidated when the high school coaches would come around. Uh, They were the high school coaches, and this was the seventh grade coach. Uh, But Coach Colby was my favorite because, believe it or not, when I was a seventh grader, I was the third shortest guy in the seventh grade. Now, there was only like 25 guys anyway, but I was the third shortest. But Coach Colby was an encourager. He was a motivator. Uh, He wanted the best out of every single student that he had. He knew that some kids were gifted athletically. I was not one of them. Uh, And Even though some were better than others and some were not as good as others, he treated us all the same. Um, He gave us respect, but in the same manner, he demanded respect. And I I really loved Coach Colby for that. Uh, Now, fast forward one year to eighth grade year. We just uh, finished our first game. Uh, We had lost that first game. And so we were hitting the weight room. And then hitting the weight room on a Tuesday, uh, we were messing around in the weight room. And Coach Colby said, I'm going to go into the office, make a few calls. I will be right back. Stay at it. Uh, There were a few of the boys. One of them was not me, just before you start asking me after I tell you this story, that started messing around. Um, And... In that moment of messing around, one of them pulls the fire alarm to think that it would be funny. Now, our weight room was in the uh, bottom of the stadium, of the football stadium, the very small stadium that it was. And so uh, the weight room was in there. The alarm goes off and the sprinklers go off at the same time. So here we are, 25 knuckleheads, that's what he used to call us, playing in the water, and he comes in. And Mr. Encourager, motivator, in an instant, turned into very angry Coach Colby. This was a side of the coach that we had never seen before. And in this moment, in this time, we gained a new uh, respect and a new awe for Coach Colby because we had seen him like we had never seen him before. Um, needless to say, we ran and we ran and we ran some more until we couldn't run anymore. And then we got mop buckets and we proceeded to clean up the weight room, uh, drying off every piece of equipment you can even imagine. So, so why in the world would I tell you that story? Why would I start with that? Tonight, we are going to see the disciples and we're going to see them encounter Jesus in a new way. They've walked with Jesus. 
They've spent time with Jesus. They've been taught by Jesus. But on this night, they're going to see him in a whole new way. Uh, And as we continue through the New Testament, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. But first, I I asked you to turn to Psalm 107. Now, the psalmist here in Psalm 107, we just sang about great is thy faithfulness. And the psalmist here is writing about the goodness of God. The psalmist here is writing about how God would be a deliverer for his people. And this section is actually titled in my Bible, Let the Redeemed of the Lord Say So. And so the psalmist will continue throughout uh, these psalms here to say that his steadfast love endures forever. So uh, Psalm 107, this kind of points us to what we're going to be reading about tonight in Mark, but I really enjoyed this, so I wanted to share it with you. Psalm 107, we're going to be starting in verse 23. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. He lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them in their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to the desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Now, if you haven't figured out by now, we're talking about Jesus calming the storm. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And before we get into this story, let me give you a little bit of background about what's going on before we get to Mark chapter 4. So there's a, a large following. There's a great crowd that is following Jesus at this point. He's been teaching the disciples as well as this large crowd that is following him. He's teaching them in parables. He would teach about the parable of the sower. Uh, he teaches them about a lamp under a basket. He teaches them about the parable of the seeds growing. Um, He teaches them about the parable of the mustard seed. And that brings us to tonight because he does all these series of teaching. Mark lays it out where there's these four teaching moments where he's teaching this crowd, teaching the disciples. And he switches to four miracles, four things that will take place in which the first we're going to talk about tonight, Jesus will calm the storm. He's going to heal a man with a demon. He's going to heal a woman from an illness. And then he's going to heal Jairus' daughter from death. And the passage that we're going to focus on tonight gives us very specific details about what's happening. Gives us very specific details on uh, where it was to take place, about what Jesus was doing, where Jesus was sleeping, what he was laying his head on. And so Mark wants to show us something very specific in this passage. And the last point I want to make before I get into this, and this is, this is a, a monumental night because you're going to hear me sing. This is great. During all of my years of youth ministry, there was a mission trip that we took to Canada. And in this mission trip to Canada, uh, these 
goofy intern people type people that were up at this uh, place that we went to uh, in Canada um, taught us this song. And it kind of went like this. With Jesus in your boat, you can smile through the storm. Smile through the storm, smile through the storm. With Jesus in your boat, you can smile through the storm. When you're sailing home. And then it went through all these goofy motions. And then what you would do with this goofy song is that you would take a word out and you would add a motion. And by the end of the song, all you're doing is motion and everyone's laughing. And it's really repetitive and it's really foolish. But youth... Love it, right? They loved it. So we would do this. And uh, now that I just sang that, I'd never want to sing it again, to be honest with you. (laughs) Now let me say this. I sang that for you because this story that we're about to read is not about Jesus getting you through the storms of life. Yes, it can be about that. And he can. Yes, uh, he will get us through storms in life. And he, he will absolutely do that. But ultimately, that is not what this passage is trying to say to us. Can he get us through the storms of life? Absolutely. Will we go through storms in life? Absolutely. But that is not what this passage is trying to show us. But, so let's look at the big idea of our passage tonight. And I have two. I couldn't make up my mind on one or the other, so you get two. The first one is Jesus has absolute authority over all creation. He has absolute authority over all creation. If you haven't figured out the second one, Jesus is God. And we can't miss that about this passage as we read it tonight. So Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35 It says, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took him, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Let's pray tonight. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what Mark wrote down in words so that we could read. The very details that he puts into the story uh, wants to tell us a message tonight. And Father, I pray that you would make sense of your word that you would pierce it straight to our hearts, that we would see you for how the disciples are going to see you on this night, that we would see you tonight in the exact same way. So, Father, I pray that you would um, reveal yourself to us. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I pray that we would grow deeper in our knowledge of you. For those that may not know you, I pray that we would, uh, you would reveal yourself to us for the very first time. We ask this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.
1986, yeah, 1986, uh, says the remains of an ancient Galilean boat known as the Jesus boat was discovered by two brothers during a massive drought on the Sea of Galilee. Took them about 12 days to unearth this boat and through a process of packing it in foam and packing it in wax, they were able to uh, take it to a museum to carbon date it and archaeologists were able to recover uh, the pieces of the ship and date it back to 100 BC to 200 AD. This would give you an idea of the type of size of the boats that would have been fishing vessels around the time of Jesus. This is probably the size of the boat that Jesus probably would have been on. And in preparation for tonight, and I'll just say that you can do this on your own. Uh, I looked up some YouTube videos of storms on the Sea of Galilee. And, And you can see some pretty amazing waves that come up on the Sea of Galilee in these times. And so just to give you an idea of the types of storms that will pop up, the types of boats that they would have been in. One of the things that this picture behind you says is that cool sea breezes plunge down ravines into the hot air, baking into the cauldron of the shallow lake. They crash into the cliffs of the eastern lakefront, there below the Golan Heights. This is one of the main reasons why fishermen in this area do not fish in the afternoons, but they will wait until nighttime to go fishing because these afternoon storms pop up, these waves will pop up and it makes not just fishing unpleasant, but getting back to shore very unpleasant and they pop up without warning and very suddenly. And so Rembrandt did a very cool painting of this. It's called With Jesus in the Storm. Almost makes me want to break out to that song, but I'm not going to sing it again. But it kind of shows you the idea of the size of the boat that Jesus and the disciples probably would have been in in the middle of this storm. And it's in the boat where everything literally, uh, physically and spiritually is going to be turned upside down. And so Mark is going to use uh, two different sets of words repetitively to make a point. And we're going to talk about those words tonight. The first word is the word great. It's going to be used three times in this text, if you look at uh, in the text. The word great can also be translated enormous. Um, The Greek meaning of the word is actually mega, and that's where we get the English word mega from. So just to let you know what that, this word great, mega, enormous, gives you an idea of what this term would have meant. So let's look at the first great in this passage, the first one. Great number one is used to describe the severity of the storm. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And then, of course, he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. This was a mega storm. This was an enormous storm. And I would guess that since a majority of these men were seasoned fishermen, not the majority, but a lot of them were seasoned fishermen, this was more severe than other storms that they had probably experienced in their life. This was a bad storm. This storm caught them off guard. It was filling up the boat. And so they were afraid. You know, a lot about this story echoes the story of Jonah. 
where you see the seasoned fishermen, they're on the boat. Jonah's down below. He's sleeping away. There's this huge storm. They're afraid for their lives. And these fishermen will go wake Jonah up to see about their safety. And so I don't want us to miss the one detail about this story that's different than the story of Jonah in that Jonah was running from God. Jesus was leading these men straight into the storm. Jesus was leading them straight into it. It wasn't by accident. And I find it funny that Jesus is sound asleep on a pillow at the stern of the ship. Sound asleep. So this great storm leads us to our first of the other three words. The other word that we're going to look at mentioned three times. It's the first of three rebukes. So rebuke number one, the disciples rebuke Jesus. I told uh, Landon this week, we were talking about a particular scripture that we were mentioning. And I told him, sometimes it's very difficult for me to read scripture without looking at it through the eyes of a sinful quarry. I want to read the passage and I want to put myself in this story and go, I would have felt this way because of this. Well, I'm sinful and it messes me up. So, and if I'm being honest, if I put myself in the story in place of the disciples, I think I would have felt the same way. To their credit, when they were afraid, they turned to Jesus. However, to their discredit, when they find him asleep, they assume that he does not care. They assume that he doesn't care. You know, I've been on a few cruises with my wife. And these are a little bit bigger of boats than what Jesus was on this night. And I can remember several nights on a cruise boat in our cabin thinking, I don't know that I can go to sleep. This, this is kind of choppy, kind of swaying back and forth. You would think sometimes it rocks you to sleep. Other times you're like, this is not normal. I'm kind of scared right now. And so to think about what these guys must have been feeling in this moment. And here we find Jesus fast asleep. Through the waves, through the rain, through the probably thunder and lightning. And so the disciples do what every child would do in the middle of the night when a thunderstorm hits your house. They come straight to their sleeping parents. Mom, Dad. And they wake him up. They accuse him of not caring. They take it that step further. They accuse Jesus of not caring if they perish. And so they woke him up. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? How typical of the creature to rebuke the creator. Sounds oddly familiar with what we've been reading through in the gospel project on Sunday mornings in my Sunday school class, to be honest with you. Over and over this takes place. You know who else would have done exactly what the disciples did? Me. Jesus has done nothing but prove himself to the disciples over and over and over. And even yet, just like them, when the disciples are caught off guard by the troubles of life, they lash out. And we do the same thing. We blame God. We throw rebukes at him. We don't trust him. We worry about what's happening in our lives, which ultimately leads to us blaming God for the situation that we're in. Here's an interesting fact for you. I kind of like this. This is the only time in the Gospels that you will see Jesus taking a nap. I'm sure there are times where Jesus took naps and other times when Jesus took a nap, but this is the only one that specifically talks about him being asleep uh, and the disciples having to wake him up. Uh, 
Um, Another interesting fact, in the parallel stories of this story in the other Gospels, Mark uses the word teacher. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Matthew uses the word Lord. Luke uses the word master. So maybe Mark is trying to make a point. Maybe Mark is trying to make the point here of, you know, maybe they're showing a little bit of fear. Maybe they're showing a little bit of distrust in how they approach him. Teacher, do you not care? And so like any good father, Jesus responds accordingly. Rebuke number two, Jesus rebukes the wind. So here we see Jesus, the God man, um, the creator of the earth. He turns from his disciples and he turns to the wind and to the seas. And he says, verse 39, peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. I talked about this with the staff a few weeks back, but the very creator, the very man who touched the fig tree and cursed it and caused it to wither instantly. He gives the command to this hurricane force wind and he says, be still. And it says the wind was instantly silenced. It instantly obeyed his command. You know, growing up in southern Oklahoma, I was very accustomed to thunderstorms in the afternoon. My grandma would always tell us, um, I mean, in southern Oklahoma, everyone had cellars, right? In West Texas, you don't have, you should have cellars from the wind storms out here, the dust storms. But um, we had cellars. And my grandma used to always say that the thunderstorms always blew in like a lion and always blew out like a lamb. One of those goofy things that my grandma used to say. They would always blow in very fast and very furious. And most southern Oklahomans, they just stand outside. This is awesome, right? And, but that's how the thunderstorm blew in. And this storm in this particular case is going to go from completely violent to completely still. It's going to describe it as a great storm. And it's also going to describe it as a great calm. I want you to try to wrap your brain around that for a moment. And like I said, West Texas wind can be very irritating. I hate the wind. I hate, and I live in West Texas. Go figure. I know it's a curse, but it's amazing to be, it would be amazing to be able to look at the West Texas wind and all the dirt and just say, stop. And it would instantly obey, right? Me of little faith. That leads us to great number two. It's used to describe the calm of the wind and the waves. He takes one look at the waves. He takes one look at the wind. And says, be still. And they obey fully. It was a great calm. This is the deity of Jesus on full display. Hurricane force wind stopped with a single word. Only God could do this. And only one conclusion could be drawn from what the disciples have just witnessed. Jesus must be God. And this is exactly the direction that Jesus wanted to take the disciples in this moment. This is exactly what he wanted to show these fishermen out here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So what would Jesus Jesus do next? Rebuke number three, Jesus rebukes the disciples. He turns from addressing the wind and the seas 
and he turned straight to addressing his disciples. Verse 40, and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In the middle of the storm, where the disciples should have been trusting him, they accuse him of forsaking them. I mentioned uh, a few weeks back uh, about the faith of the Canaanite woman. And two times that Jesus uh, commended people for their faith and said that they had great faith. Both Gentiles, one a Canaanite woman, the other a Roman centurion. And he says that they have great faith. Here in this moment, Jesus asked the disciples why they still have no faith. Not little faith, no faith. Sadly enough, this is not the last time that he will ask ask the disciples regarding their lack of faith or lack of understanding. I'll put those in your notes, the other mentioning of those. This is still, I think, the struggle that we have today. I mean, this is what the disciples will still continue to struggle with even after this moment. I think a lot of them will struggle with their faith until they see the resurrected Christ and Will they fully understand who Jesus was and what he accomplished on the cross? They would struggle with their faith. However, we don't have any excuse. I mean, they had a lot of questions about who Jesus was, even though they were seeing miracle after miracle. Here we are on this side of the cross. We know that Jesus is all-powerful. We know Jesus is all-knowing. We know that he's taking our sins away. We know that he rose from the dead. We know he can be trusted no matter what. So I think the question is the same question to us as it was to the disciples. Why do you still have such little faith when you're going, th- when you've seen all of these things? Um, which leads us to great number three, a great number three. And I think that might be uh, used to describe the fear of the disciples. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, I like to imagine, and let me just paraphrase this by saying that the scriptures do not say this. I like to imagine in my mind that in this moment, Jesus rebukes the disciples and he goes straight back to his pillow and goes back to sleep. I know that it doesn't say that, but I like to imagine that because there was a storm and now there's not. And not just not, but it's a great calm. So you can absolutely hear anything and everything. And I like to imagine that Jesus goes right back to sleep and they're left to just sit there and talk amongst themselves and think about what they have just witnessed. Uh, I would say you could hear a pin drop, but you could hear water drop at this moment. So um, that says that they had great fear. I randomly checked a few websites to find the top 10 phobias in America. The top 10 phobias are something like this. Uh, The fear of spiders, the fear of public speaking, heights, dogs flying, thunder and lightning. Maybe they had this. Uh, Needles, being alone, germs, and death. Uh, 
Uh, a lot of people like to imagine that they probably had some type of a fear of death. Maybe that's what the disciples were struggling with that night. Uh, I quite possibly think it was this one, xenophobia, the fear of strangers or the fear of the unknown. When we encounter someone or something that we don't know much about, the fear of the unknown, something that's different than we are accustomed to. Like the way that we saw Coach Colby in his anger. We were like, we don't like that side of Coach Colby. We like this calm, peaceful side of Coach Colby. This other side kind of scares us. It's not something that we are accustomed to. The disciples here have been walking with Jesus and now they come face to face with the deity of Christ, with who he is, really, with the God-man. They're seeing him for who he is probably more authentically for the first time than they ever have before. And they are left with asking the question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Funny part is, they go from being afraid of the storm, but then it says that their fear was increased when the storm went away. Their greatest fear came after the storm had been removed. They were afraid of Jesus in this moment. They had a fear that was a great fear. So what should we learn from this text? What do we need to take away from this tonight? Uh, First of all, I think we need to take away that God is working in all of life circumstances. You know, we should not be alarmed in the world that we live in and um, everything that happens in our life. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes we just go through life thinking if everything's going great, we're just like, okay, something's coming. I know something's going to happen that just causes anxiety in my life. I'm just expecting it. Uh, If you've lived any life at all, you know what that feels like. You know, if everything's going great, I just, I just wait for it. You just wait on something to happen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says this. Just a reminder for you. For everything, there's a season. A time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born. A time to die. A time to plant. A time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill. A time to heal. A time to break down. A time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, time to cast away stones, time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, to keep, to cast away, a time to to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. You know, life happens. There is a time for all things under the sun. And we need to remember that God is working in the middle of all of those types of situations. He's working in all the situations that we face in life. And one thing that we always need to remember is that He has not left us. He hasn't abandoned us. Even when we think that God is silent, he is still there. Um, Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven, before he leaves his disciples, is he says, I will be with you even until the end of the age. 
I will still be with you. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He's with us every step of the way. The problem is, second point, we lack faith when we worry. And when we worry, we show that it's a lack of faith. Verse 38, do you not care that we are perishing? I think some of us have probably gone through some trials in life and things in life where uh, in a way we've asked God the very same question. Do you not see the pain that I'm in? Do you not see the struggle that I am experiencing? Do you not see the situation and how I feel? He's with us. And like Peter on another boat trip, uh, when Jesus was walking on water, and Peter says, well, God, if that's, if Jesus, if that's you, call me out there. And he says, well, come on. Peter steps out of the boat. And good old Peter, lots of faith, starts walking on water. And what happens? He takes his eyes off Christ. He puts his eyes on the waves, and he begins to sink. And he tells him, why did you lose faith? Why did you stop having faith? And he began to sink. The disciples in this moment, in the very presence of God's himself, God's son himself, forgot who they were with. They forgot who they were with and thought their situation was greater than who Jesus was. They took their eyes off Christ. They put their eyes on the situation and it says they lost faith in this moment. <clears throat> and I say, <clears throat> excuse me, we do this. 100%. God's people have been guilty of doing this uh, throughout all of history. We get so focused on our circumstances. We get so focused on the issues of life that we lose focus of God. And we begin to worry. We begin to fear. And we don't trust God like we should in that moment. Um, and just like the disciples, we have to trust God. Even in the middle of the storm. Even when things look like this is, might be the very end, we trust God. He's with us every step of the way. And when those storms happen, when those things in life happen, we should cry out to him rather than rebuking him. Which leads to our third thing is trials happen to grow our faith. Things happen in our life. Circumstances happen in our life. Trials are placed in our life to help grow our faith. Difficult times happen for a reason. Number one, because we live in a sinful fallen world. Number two, God wants to grow our faith. Those things happen. God wants to use moments like this to encourage us to strengthen our faith, not to cause us to doubt God. Um, and so James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God wants to grow the faith of the disciples in this moment. Uh, he wants them to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, God uses moments like this in our own lives as well. Uh, we don't like them when they happen most of the time. Oh, Lord, thank you for this trial. I pray that you just... That's not how we accept those things. If you do, then you're a lot better than I am. But we react a lot of the time just like the disciples do. We react. We react, we blame, we whine, we cry. Um, 
Maybe, maybe we even say something foolish like this. I heard this in my Sunday school lesson. God, you should have left us as in Egypt as slaves. You should have just left us there. You know, I think I've heard that a few times in the last couple of months. God, you should have just left us in Egypt. That's because they look at their situation and they forget about God. Even though there's a big pillar of cloud by day and a big pillar of fire by night, they take their eyes off of God and they put it on their circumstances and they lose that faith. Again, recall the story of Jonah that I mentioned earlier. Unlike the disciples, when they questioned Jesus, the fishermen woke Jonah up and at least they asked Jonah, hey, can you cry out to your God for us? Because we know that your God is powerful and then he can do something about this storm. They had more faith than the disciples in this moment when you really think about the story. It's kind of crazy. Some of the hardest lessons in life that we can learn are from making mistakes. I think the disciples, as well as Mark in this moment, put this in our Bibles to say, hey, one, you need to see Jesus for who he truly is. But two, I think they're telling you, we were stupid and you don't need to make the same mistake that we did. Learn from our mistake. Trust him. Have faith in him. He is there with you. Learn from our mistakes. You need to trust God. Uh, And so that leads us to the biggest point I think that we need to wrestle with tonight that we come face to face with in this story and that is who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? That is the question that the writers of the Gospels want you to wrestle with from this text. It's the ultimate question that all humans must come face-to-face with as they live their life on this earth. What the disciples faced here on the Sea of Galilee that night was the holiness of Christ, was the holiness of Jesus, was the holiness of God. They liked the power that he had when they were in trouble. They liked when he cast out demons and how he multiplied bread. They liked all these miracles and all this other stuff. But when they woke him up to save them, they were not ready for what followed. They weren't ready to see Jesus in that way. Jesus showed them exactly who he was, and they were left with this fear. They said, this guy is not normal. This is different than anything we've ever seen before. Because they came face to face with the holiness of Jesus Christ, and they were left in fear. Who is this who commands the wind and it obeys? And the one thing that every person on earth fears the most, even though they may not realize it yet, is the holiness of God. If you really think about it and you stop and think about that very statement, the thing on earth that every person fears the most is the holiness of God. R.C. Sproul says it like this. If Christ in his majesty were to knock on your door this morning, you would not say to him, Hi, buddy, come on in. Rather, you would fall on your face when the resurrected Christ in his glory and the manifestation of his holiness appears. All creatures will fall at his feet because he is other. He is holy. That means that not only do people tremble at his voice, but seas that have no ears listen to his command and winds that have no knowledge know enough to stop blowing when he says, be still. That is our Lord. 
What a great quote from R.C. And as we end tonight, we started tonight in a boat, and I want to end tonight in a boat. Flip over to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. I want to read a story about when Jesus is calling the disciples. says this, starting in verse 1. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let, your, let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners on other boats to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Don't miss verse 8. And when Simon saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I had to do a little digging. Why would he fall down at Jesus' knees? It's because the boat was so full of fish. That's as low as he could get. Someday... When Jesus returns, he will return in all of his glory. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And when that moment takes place, it will be too late to say yes and to follow Jesus. Here in the book of Mark, as well as the other gospels, they want those who have ears to let them hear. John the Baptist came declaring to the world, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And through the gospels, the message is exactly the same. Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son to live a life that we could not, to die the death that we deserved, so that through Jesus, the God-man, There would be forgiveness for sins. The disciples came face to face with the holiness of God and it changed their lives forever. Today you have to. And the question you have to ask yourself is, if I know him, do I really see him for who he truly is? And if you don't know him, you've come face to face with him tonight. And you have to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus to me? The disciples ask Who is this that commands even the wind and the seas and they obey him? Repent. Trust in Jesus if you never have. Let's pray tonight.